0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports, History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I am Evan Axelbank, and today we will speak with the author of Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump, author Kate Brower. This is her fourth book on the American presidency. She's a CNN contributor and has worked for Bloomberg News, the New York Times and Washington Post, among others. So thanks so much for being here, Ms. Brower.
1: Thanks for having me, Evan.
0: Uh, if I may call you Kate, she uh, is that okay?
1: Yes. Please. All right,
0: good. Kate has had the, um, the, she has the fortunate or unfortunate position of being on our first show, depending on how all of this goes.
1: Hmm.
0: So that means we're going to take a quick detour right here before we start our conversation with her. And I just want to use that detour to just say, I'm starting this podcast because there's a need to make history accessible to everyone. Over the course of developing my obsessive hobby of reading books on American history, alongside my career as a TV reporter, I decided the more we know about history, the better choices we will make for our future. So thanks so much for listening to this first installment. And let me say I am thrilled for my first guest to be an author of presidential history, because that really is my favorite kind of history. So Kate, welcome aboard as our test case.
1: Mm, Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Thank
0: you. And and, and sadly, we're going to be constrained by the time limits of an episode. I could probably talk to you for hours here. But uh, first of all, uh, the President's Club. Not the title of your book I'm I'm speaking here, but just in practice. Do the four living ex-presidents see themselves as members of an official club, or do they have a loose association with one another?
1: They have a loose association with one another. I mean, they they do all follow these unwritten rules of, you know, not weighing in on the sitting president as often as they can, they are restrained, but it's not like, um, you know, they're not all on a text chain together. Right. That was, that was my hope going into it, that it was a little bit more formal, but it's, it's loose, but they, they do respect one another. And even when, you know, uh, after Clinton beat Bush, George H.W. Bush, there was kind of a grudging admiration that the two men had for each other, and, and I go into that in the book.
0: I guess it sort of would have been a dream for you if uh, one of them said, oh, I actually have a text message chain right here that I can use." Yeah. Right? That would have made the research.
1: <laughs> that would have been amazing. In fact, one of Obama's advisors, he's, when I, uh, it's sort of one of my earliest calls, I explained what I was working on and he said, you know, this would be a great work of fiction, um, you know, but, it, but the actual reality of it is that they don't, you know, all get on a conference call every day and decide how to respond to Trump or, but they do, they're do like the, their their staffs are very much in touch with one another.
0: Ah, that's interesting. So um, one of the things about the presidents is that they're sort of a constant presence for us, whether they're in office or not. They're sort of always looming over whatever is happening in America, and people think about, oh, I remember what Obama, would, you know, was like, or I wonder what George Bush would have done at this moment. So one of the things is. So many of them are alive right now because presidents are living longer just because I think, you know, they have access to great health care and healthcare and medicine has generally gotten better. But uh, just a few years ago, there were five um, presidents living together. So just explain, if you can, how unusual it is for us to have so many presidents alive at once.
1: I mean, there have only been four periods when five former presidents were alive. So, you know, before Bush 40, George H.W. Bush passed away, and he's referred to as Bush 41 because he's the 41st president, um, that was a great opportunity for the current president to reach out to them because there were so many still alive. Um, you know, but going back in history, when Lyndon Johnson died in 1973, Richard Nixon was only the sixth living president to have no former presidents to ask for advice. So you think, and you know, of course I'm including George Washington in that lineup, right? But the idea that Nixon couldn't uh, during Watergate Really reach out to anybody and ask for for guidance. Now I'm not sure if Nixon would have right, but the sense that there is this, and you know this because you're you're a student of history and you're really you you've obviously read quite a bit. Um, JFK. Asked all of his living predecessors during the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, for their advice during those 13 days. And you can actually go um, to the Kennedy Library's website and you see the dates at which he called the former presidents who were still living at the time. So when he called Eisenhower, for instance, you know, it's just a fascinating thing that, that they reach out to each other because it's like any job, right? You would want to find out the person who had the job before you, if you could contact them, you know, what were some things they could have done better and what are some pitfalls? And, and, and I think that that's been really powerful um, in our history.
0: And, you know, that might be good advice for all of us. We should think about calling the uh, people mm-hmm. more often who have expertise that we may not yet are, are seeking to have. Um, it, and, and those recordings are highly recommended. Some of them <laughs> when Kennedy calls, Eisenhower general, you know, and he's always barking into the phone. It, uh, it, it is fantastic. I think yeah. there's one call where you can hear Kennedy actually trying to, like, urge Eisenhower off the phone, like, yep, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yeah, okay. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, um, I mean, think of, the, think of how much Kennedy had to sort of, especially after the Bay of Pigs, which, you know, Eisenhower had had ordered that operation and then it goes terribly wrong and Eisenhower's like kind of you listen to the recording where he's like well you know you did you you did it you should have listened you, sh- you didn't do what I would have done and it's like Kennedy's probably thinking you were the person who got me into this mess you know um, it's fascinating listening to those calls
0: Um, The the book begins with your meeting with the current president, and when the book came out, this made um, some news, but I I thought it was ironic um, that you set the scene that way because he was elected by people who very much wanted him to break the norms of the office, and so much of this club is about those norms, and you ask him whether he would attend President Obama's library open if former President Obama invited him, and without a hint of being bothered, President Trump not only said President Obama probably wouldn't invite him, but agreed it would probably be weird for him to do so. So mm-hmm. how did that the exchange hit you? And um, I guess I would also ask, do you think President Obama or former President Obama would, um, would invite President Trump to, to something like that? Does he see such a, a, you know, a duty to this club that he would make that invitation? So anyway, your thoughts on that exchange?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's I, I, that the, the latter part of that. I, I've always been fascinated by thinking of that, uh, whether Obama would invite him. When I was sitting across from Trump, he was sitting at the Resolute desk, and the president was very engaged in our conversation. He was leaning forward kind of squinting his eyes, like really drilling down into what I was asking, which I was very happy about. You know, he wanted to talk about this, but he was also very blunt. And as you say, when I asked him, you know, how does he think he'll fit into the president's club? He kind of laughed and he said, not very well. You know, I don't what want to do be
0: think? in that club, right?
1: <laughs> right. Like, what do you think? You know, what a question. And, and then and then when I asked about President Obama's library opening, he kind of jutted his chin out and sort of it over, and then he said, "You know, well, why would he even invite me?" And I think that that does get to the heart of the the issue. Is that, first of all, I think Obama would invite him because I think that that's just part of tradition. It it, it sometimes I think when Trump isn't included, like with John McCain's funeral, it becomes about Donald Trump. And I know that the Bush family really wanted him to come to. Uh, Bush 41's funeral because they didn't want it to become like a sideshow of why he wasn't invited, you know? So I think Obama would invite him. And I think that Trump, you know, I think he might actually go, even though he says he wouldn't, because he wants to be part of this club. I think deep down, he feels like he's been ostracized by them. And that's why he hits back so hard at them on Twitter. It's like, he feels like, you know he's been bullied almost which is ironic because that's not the way that most people see it you know but he, he told me that he thinks Jimmy Carter has been unfairly treated by the former presidents as well and that he you know sees himself kind of like Carter as an outsider which I thought was fascinating
0: yeah and, and I do uh, I do have a, a couple of questions I want to ask you about that um, a little bit later but yeah Jimmy Carter has always sort of seemed to um, have um, mm-hmm maybe difficult, you would say, relationships with, with other former presidents. Um, but, but before we get to some of that, I do wanna ask, um, the second chapter of the book is about the unwritten rules of the club. Um, and one of the things I wanna do with this, this episode here is just explain what you mean by that. And so um, you say there is no clubhouse for the men who were once the most powerful people in the world, but there is a very strict understanding among them. And one of the rules is that you write here is honor a shared history. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, it's that sense of empathy that they have uh, for one another. And I get into you know the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and how they were bitter rivals. And you know Adams didn't even go to Jefferson's inauguration, and he left him this terse note saying, you know, how many horses were in the state. At the White House, it was very uh, tense and difficult, and and then you know in their later years they famously forged this friendship and sent letters back and forth to each other for years and died the same day within hours of each other um, on the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, an, an incredible story. And I think that we see uh, this sense that they can all get over their losses, you know. And and more recently, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter—they, a shared history of being president, a shared history of the of interest in the presidency. Most of them have read about. Uh, former presidents, and most you know, Bill Clinton had stacks of books and just voraciously read about the men who came before him, and so that's what I mean by that. And I think that Trump is certainly an outlier there. He is not as curious about the men who came before him.
0: I think is there also a sense that um, they sort of can't believe they're living this life? I mean, we all know who the presidents are, and. Um, you know, I, I got that sense from Bill Clinton suddenly having access to Richard Nixon, who was at one time, you know, he mm-hmm. and um, Hillary Clinton's nemesis, and all of a sudden they're in this same club and Bill Clinton can just pick up the phone and call him. Um, I think um, they seem to really sort of um, kind of can't believe yeah. that they're in that situation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think there is kind of a sense of disbelief, right, that you've you've reached this peak and that you have one um and then i think it's fascinating and i and i get into it in the book the the idea that these former presidents then are desperately trying like nixon trying to be influential again, and there's one point where Nixon, you know, calls up a Clinton advisor and threatens to write a negative op-ed if they don't let him talk to Clinton. You know, right then, it's it's this sort of sense of reaching that height, and you're never going to get higher than the uh, becoming president, and then fo- abruptly your life changes. And there's a great story of Harry Truman when he moves back to Independence, and. And um, someone says, what are you going to do now? And he says, take the grips up to the attic. You know, he's going to just unfold, ya, you know, take his clothes out of the suitcases. This idea that they're suddenly semi-private citizens, I think is fascinating.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things um, in presidential history is that there's always an aide who's watching as the person goes from being an ordinary citizen to becoming president And they see the counter assault team show up and the people with the rifles show Mm -hmm. up and the secret service. There's, there's suddenly the nuclear football and all these other Mm -hmm. things. Um, They really do in some ways become more than just um, more than just a person. And then they sort of go back to that life. And one of the quotes you have in the book is there's nothing more pathetic in life than a former president. I think John Mm -hmm. Quincy Adams, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What did he, what did he mean? And you know, they, Often say, I don't want to talk about what's going on publicly. And there's kind of an understanding that they not talk about publicly, uh, you know, their opinions on things. And then they sometimes decide to. So explain that kind of unwritten rule.
1: I think they feel tremendous pressure not to, and this is a relatively new uh, not to weigh in on what's going on um, after they leave office. It's, it's a relatively new rule. I mean, you go back and look at Teddy Roosevelt, who, you know, ran against um, Taft and his handpicked successor. You know, he and criticized him and criticized Woodrow Wilson publicly when Wilson was president. And there have been many times where. Um, you know, Bill Clinton was critical of the war in Iraq, for instance. And so there have been times where they have weighed in, but I think they mostly try to stay on the sidelines and not do that. And I think that a lot of that is the precedent set by George H.W. Bush. And they Particularly feel that pressure now. Um, I know from my reporting that you know President Trump has made it so that if they do weigh in, it's kind of seen as a rallying um, for his. He can use that against them. You know, if Obama when Obama speaks out against Trump, I think it does help Trump kind of get his base um excited and it mobilizes his base and so there's a sense now it's just we're so divided and uh you know i think that it's become even harder for the former presidents to 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 weigh in and to to sort of be above the fray they really can't be uh, above politics um especially not now
0: and sometimes we do see them speak out um particularly at political conventions Um, And there's always this question of like, how much is what they say going to matter? Bill Clinton certainly had a long influence at political conventions, um, you know, from his, uh, you know, starting in 2004, his first president or his first uh, convention not being president or the nominee. And I think it was a dozen years. Um, Do they try to keep themselves relevant or are they okay in understanding that over time my influence will wane?
1: I mean, just looking at the cover of my book, which has all the, you know, five former presidents when Bush was alive at the time. And this was in 2009 when um, Obama was first elected. And there, he, you know, he's there with Bush, uh, with both Bushes and with Clinton and Carter. And I can tell you, it took a long time to get this photo because all of the shots are of Carter kind of standing off to the side. And because he wasn't in the frame and he was awkwardly kind of standing away from the other former presidents, and that is because of his insistence on weighing in. You know, he has been outspoken, and that's damaged his relationships with these men. I mean, you know, I talk about in the book when he went to Haiti. Um, there was a, a you know military coup, and he's in Haiti, and he's trying to help and. He takes a CNN crew with him and does an interview with CNN before in telling Clinton what happened. And Clinton, you know, is just furious about that. And I mean, Carter does not play by the rules. And I think we've seen that he's paid a price for that. And, you know, I've interviewed him and I don't think he much cares what they think of him, really. Um, In the same way that, you know, Trump says he doesn't care either. They actually do have that in common.
0: Bill Clinton, um, and he seems to come up a lot. I think because he just loves being part of everything all the time. Um, But you know, one of the things that you know we've seen is that um, his influence um, has lasted, whereas George W. Bush's influence um, Mm. was up almost right away the moment he left office, because he left office during um, a financial crisis, and people were still and are Mm -hmm. to this day angry about the Iraq War. Um, Do you think George W. Bush was or is disappointed about that.
1: I think George W. Bush is, you know, polling better than he ever would have dreamed, you know, in his wildest dreams. I think he's like, he and Laura Bush went to Dallas and they say, they call Texas, you know, the promised land. They're going home to the promised land. They're in Crawford and Dallas and they're enjoying their lives. And, you know, I, I interviewed his best friend who said, look, you know, he spends his time painting and riding his bike and walking. You know, little league baseball. Like he's just—he's—he is he's happy more disappointed
0: though Biden. than than he's let on. Do you think he's more disappointed than he lets on?
1: I think he's—I think he is disappointed with the fact that the Republican Party has changed so much. And we know, you know, there have been recent reports that he's not going to vote for Trump. And I—I I, I would be surprised if he voted for Biden. I think there's a difference between vote, you know, expressing your distaste in Donald Trump and, and then saying you're going to suddenly become a Democrat um, when your family is a Republican dynasty and you have a nephew like george P bush who has just endorsed Trump I mean there's a legacy there but I think that um I think that Bush is very uh you know saddened by what's happened and I know he's compared what's going on now with the Civil War and he's told friends you know if we could get through the Civil war we can get through the trump presidency mm. and I think that that says a lot about where his head is at. And he tries to change the subject at every turn when he's asked about Donald Trump.
0: Interesting. Uh, A lot of my questions so far have been about the the former presidents and how they talk to one another um, and why they do when they do. Um, But Donald Trump has not asked for much help at all during the day to day decision-making. I think you had one tidbit in there about a phone call to Jimmy Carter, that I think ended pretty quickly, and Carter mm-hmm. didn't say a whole lot about it. Um, why do you think that Donald Trump has not done more to reach out to his predecessors?
1: Well, and I'll just add with the Bush, uh, your your question about Bush it was interesting because look, he absence does make the heart grow fonder. And I would just say that former presidents are wise to not <laughs> speak out because people respect when they stay on the sidelines. Um, but I think Trump can't, can't reach out to these former presidents because he has this kind of view that that the presidency and the campaigns are this blood sport. You know, he has gotten to where he is by burning these bridges and I asked him if he could see himself becoming friends with any of them. And he said, anything's possible, you know? Um, and then he talked about Clinton, both Clintons coming to his wedding to Melania and he's very proud of that.
0: He's very proud of the fact that they were at that wedding.
1: Yes. It was funny because he said, I don't know if you've seen the photo. And I said, oh, of course, (laughs) everybody (laughs) in the world has seen that photo. Um, And I I did not realize that Hillary sat in the front pew at the actual ceremony in the church, though. That's really interesting to me. I mean, it's just kind of phony, you know, on both sides, right? Not to be I try not to be partisan at all in, in these books, but like, it does make both sides look bad, that there was an exchange of influence and power for, for money that Trump then donated to the Clintons.
0: And then use um, used that in the campaign to say, look how much I know about it.
1: <laughs> yes. That's the process. Yes, I mean the whole thing is really distasteful, and I think that I do think that Carter does come across, and the Bushes actually come—they they come across looking pretty good because, especially Carter, because it's not all about money. And I, I have a chapter in the book called "Cashing In," yeah, and, and we are
0: going to get to that because that's a big yeah. part of being an ex-president.
1: Yes, it's not—it's not pretty. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, certainly the, certainly the, the presidents of the 1700s or the 1800s would say, wow, you're making a lot of money these days. Um, before we get to that, though, I I do want to ask a a couple of things about some behind the scenes stuff. So one of the things I love about your books is they get into these very awkward plane rides that they have, or at least the ones that start awkward and end up not as awkward. Um, they often Mm -hmm. go and do fundraising things together on the helicopter and, and what have you. Um, uh, You write a lot about relationships that are sort of hard to see coming sometimes. Uh, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, um, Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. Um, Give me just some behind the scenes type things about how these relationships developed and what sort of happened, if you want to start with Ford and Carter, that made them, uh, you know, from political opponents to friends.
1: I mean, Ford and Carter is especially interesting because, you know, when, when Ford lost, he was so upset that Betty Ford had to step in, you know, his voice was too hoarse and he was emotional and overcome. So that Betty Ford had to step in and and and, and give his, you know, uh, resignation. I mean when when he when he basically acknowledged that he had lost um because that whole thing played out over a, like all night long no one knew who officially won and Ford was holding out hope and so their relationship was uh was not good at all because ford had never been elected you know he was the accidental president he kind of ended up with the presidency He desperately, I think, wanted to be elected. They were devastated when they lost. And then Carter comes in and Ford actually, you know, I dug up this old um, story that he had criticized Carter for his handling of inflation at the time. And so he he didn't always bite his tongue. And then these two men are sent by Reagan, you know, to to Cairo after Sadat was assassinated. And it is an incredible trip where Nixon is there with them, um mrs carter is there also and they they take this long plane ride and there's a discussion about what they should all call each other should they call each other mr president or just their first names i think they decided on the first names and who should go in first to the plane i mean there's all this formality and um i think nixon was the one who said it should be the person should do, first should be the person who just you know, was most recently in office. But it's incredible to think of these three former presidents sitting and together always,
0: on a plane. Yeah, and, and always following this sort of ceremonial thing. Yeah. Okay, who goes first? Who goes second? Okay, let's do it by administration uh, order. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, another r- fascinating relationship, um, Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. I remember a quote from Bill Clinton saying, when Richard Nixon passed away, I felt like my own father had died. Um, Hmm. They went from opponents in so many ways, um, both during Watergate with Hillary working, you know, on the team trying to convict him. um, And then politically, (laughs) they had different ideas. And here is Bill Clinton calling Richard Nixon his own father, um, Mm -hmm. or the father he never had even. Um, So anyway, Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, fascinating
1: yeah i mean it it is really fascinating that i think I think again it goes to the sense that Clinton respected uh, nixon's intellect, you know his opening up of relations uh with China, so you know at at nixon's funeral, Clinton spoke and talked about you know we should not look at nixon's life in through the lens of this one event right which i think that the subtext there now this was well before monica lewinsky but you know whitewater and a lot of scandals were engulfing the white house really from day one when clinton was in office and i think that the subtext of what Clinton was saying was, you know, look at, look at Nixon for the good that he did as well as the bad. And I think Clinton, you know, in a self-serving way, wants people to look at his presidency and his legacy that way too. Um, so there is, again, like this this shared sense of, there are only a few people who know the pressures that these, these people, hmm. the presidents face. And so I think there was an emotion. I think Nixon's funeral, I thought, was really actually very emotional.
0: The word I'm thinking of is empathy. These these Mm -hmm. presidents seem to develop empathy for their predecessors. Um, We all might if we knew what it was like to be (laughs) to be president. Yes. Um, Bill Clinton and George H. W. Bush uh, talk about that scene on the plane. Uh, I think they're on the way to fundraise in um, after the tsunami. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's only one bed and Bill Clinton offers the, the bed as we all probably would to the, to the elder statesman. Um, and uh, that was seen as sort of a moment where they mended a rift that had developed.
1: Yeah. I mean, they didn't know what to make either. And I, I interviewed Alan Simpson, who the, the Senator who was, was friendly with both of them. And he said both of them called him separately before they went on that trip to Asia after the tsunami, which was really the, the, Moment that their relationship began and uh, and said, You know what do you think like what 's he like and So they both called Simpson asking for advice and um, you know because I think that you forget that the ninety two uh, election was hard fought. And they did say pretty damning things about one another, including um, Bush, you know, calling out Clinton for, for not serving in Vietnam. And I think there was a lot of bad blood there. And then they came together at George W. Bush's suggestion and um i know that before bush passed away clinton was just incredibly distraught and the, the last time he saw him he was crying and said i think you know i don't, told this friend i don't think i'm gonna ever ever see him again and i mean just clinton didn't have an a father a stable father figure his father his biological father died before he was born um in a car crash. And then his stepfather was, uh, you know, uh, abusive and, and an alcoholic. And I mean, so he just, he looked at Bush really like a surrogate dad. And, and, and that is a very real and touching relationship.
0: And the family made uh, fun of them for that. Yeah. Yes. did they yeah. say the, 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 brother
1: uh, from another mother, <laughs> brother from another mother. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, let's also talk about George W. Bush and Michelle Obama. Um, not necessarily, you know, not exactly a presidential relationship, but certainly close enough. And one that has really gotten a lot of press and people seem to love. Uh, why do people love that mm-hmm. so much?
1: Well, I think, it especially now, it shows that you, you can have this friendship that is based solely on, you know, personality versus politics or gender or race. I mean i was interested that it, when i was sort of digging into that photo of uh, the smithsonian african american museum the famous photo where you know he, uh, michelle obama's got her arms wrapped around bush and he's kind of leaning in and smiling and it's very sweet and i i learned that a lot of that while it is genuine is also for show i mean they want mm-hmm. people to see that and um, they're very aware uh, both Bush and Obama, Michelle Obama, are incredibly, you know, smart people. And they want the cameras to to, to capture those moments because they believe that it's important to send that message uh, now. So more They than
0: understand else. that people will see that the candy being given to her. George W. Yeah. hands the pieces of candy and he did it one time totally for show at his own father's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, so they understand those images then.
1: Yes, very much so. And it, it, that's not to take away from the importance of them. But I think that it also, um, they understand the power of of that, um, you know, w- message. And I think that's also why, that's why I think Obama would invite Donald Trump to his presidential library opening. I think that's why the Bush has invited uh, Trump to Bush's funeral. You know, the sense is, there is a protocol here and none of these former presidents is willing to step away from it. I mean, the person who would, would be Donald Trump, right? He's the one that doesn't care as much about institutions and. He might get um, his
0: power from that too, you know, his internal strength.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. Bucking that and, and being this disruptor has been his greatest strength. And so, like you said earlier, why would he want to conform when it's worked for him not to conform?
0: Right. It made him president. Um, yeah. uh, they all seem to miss it. And I would say maybe with the exception of George W. Bush, who doesn't seem to to, you know, regret the fact that he's no longer in power. But you know we could certainly debate that. Um, what does it say about the kind of person who seeks power for all the pain and the grief and the work schedule that being president <laughs> is and the criticism that they take? What kind of person would miss that?
1: Mm, I know. It's hard to imagine wanting that job, right? I think it's just... <laughs> The, the ego, I mean, I hate to say it, they all do share that tremendous ego. Um, and, you know, you can like them or not, but like, and my favorite story in the book, by the way, is of, of Obama in, in Bush 41, right before Bush dies. The last president Bush sees is is Barack Obama, not Bill Clinton or his own son, which I think is incredible. But even Bush 41, you know, somebody who's very... Uh, you know, gentlemanly and, and you, you wouldn't think had an enormous ego. I mean, he does. Right. I, who, who wants this? Right. Right. Yeah. Who wants this? Right.
0: Uh, I I mean, and it's, it's 24 hours a day and you know, you get woken up with literally a problem that is life or or death. And Mm -hmm. um, then you spend eight years. If you have it your way, you spend eight years doing it and then they all get out of office. And the first thing Bill Clinton says is I miss the work. And you know, Barack Obama would like another shot at a couple of things right now. Um, And to this day, Jimmy Carter, who I believe (laughs) slept in the Oval Office on the last night he was in office. um, They they don't want to let go.
1: They don't. And it's the adrenaline. And, and you know, when um, Obama was negotiating his deal for his book, he talks about how, you know, his agent said, oh, the publisher will, you know, we'll talk to the editors soon. And Obama said, okay, well, I can talk to them this afternoon or tomorrow morning. And his agent said, no, I'm thinking next week. And Obama says something like, you know, for me, decisions are light, we life and death. And they had to be made right then like next week is an eternity from now uh to a president and i think they get hooked i mean they're like addicted to the to the adrenaline and the power i mean bill clinton barely slept you know and um they feed off of that it's calling
0: people at four in the morning and three in the morning yeah. don't trump too doesn't sleep although i guess he didn't sleep before this but um right. <laughs> Uh, uh, so th- you mentioned this before, but we have to talk about it because it is just, it has become such a big part of the ex presidency. Um, and that is the money that they make. Now, look, you know, we're sitting here with a couple of reporters here. So, so you and I both, uh, you know, uh, would look at a $400,000 a year job and go, my goodness, this is a well-paying job by almost any yeah. standard. Um, yeah and most Americans would 99% of Americans would. Um, but it's probably even with that big salary, probably the greatest ratio of money that one can make. If you compare pre-retirement and post retirement, I mean, they go from making 400 grand a year to 400 grand a day, um, plus the books. Um, so first of all, uh, is that appropriate? And I don't know if you, I want you to take a position if that, if you're not comfortable doing so, but a lot of people would ask that question. Um, So let me ask that. Um, How do we deal with this idea that presidents leave office and make all of this money?
1: You know, I think that, um, a lot of them would say that they, they, they do a lot of good with it. Like they, they point to their charity work and this and that, but it does make you wonder how much is too much. And then also, I mean, Obama himself has said, how nice a car can you have? How nice, a, you know, uh, yeah, house. Also said,
0: he also says, excuse me for interrupting you, but he also says, oh. I can't believe how much money I've got. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah no and but but they are, will, they are fighting tooth and nail for it it's not like he's not the, and I think that he would say why, why shouldn't we have a 60 million dollar book contract you know what other people have benefited and I know you know the Clintons are famous for the amount of money they've made him Bill Clinton's in one speech when Hillary was secretary of state he made half a million dollars for one speech I mean this is a couple hours of your time um, and I think people when the average salary in this country is like 50 grand for a family of four or something. I think they are looking at that and aghast. I, right. I see why. Um, and I think that you know someone like Jimmy Carter who idolized Harry Truman, as you know, and Truman is someone who just really bristled at the idea of making money. Yeah, I stories.
0: wanted to ask you to tell the pen story because that pen story is great. Tell that.
1: Yeah, I mean, so he he when Truman left office, there was no Secret Service, there was no pension. He had to make money selling his memoirs, and he uh, was so worried about people thinking that he was trying to make money that he wouldn't use brand name pens when he was signing books because. He didn't want people to think he was endorsing the company that made the pen. And now, you know, since Gerald Ford started joining corporate boards and making so much money, presidents are, you know, signing deals with Netflix. Um, They are making millions and millions off of books that they'll never be able to make. I mean, I know that Michelle Obama's book is, you know, probably one of the best selling books of all time. So maybe she'll make that back but the idea that anybody could earn a uh, an advance of 30 million dollars or something that's a lot of books you know and it's (laughs) so (laughs) that's a lot um so they're they're trading on the prestige and the access and um i think it's you know I can, I think it's a bit distasteful just because of the sheer amount of money and when is it enough? And I think that it really hurt Hillary Clinton, frankly, in 2016, because people, yeah. yeah, people don't, people don't want to see that. And Obama did it too. He did some speeches after he left the White House to some banks, and it just lo- it just looks bad. And it's also, I don't know why they do it, because they don't need to do it. And,
0: and and these are not people afraid of public speaking. I mean, why should they make half a million dollars to give a speech?
1: I mean, it's yeah, like this right. is heavy
0: labor to them. They've got someone to write it. All they got to do is show up and read it.
1: Right. I mean, but, but I, human nature, I guess, you just want to... Yeah. and and that's why I think Carter is so fascinating because he's written more than 30 books, but his net worth is well under $10 million. You know, he's in that kind of zone of he's wealthy, but he is not uber rich and he has done so much good with the Carter center. You can debate his presidency. A lot of people would say he was not a successful president, but he's done a lot. Uh, he's eradicated diseases, you know, no other president can say that they've done that. Um, and so I think he's kind of the model that that it would be nice if if more people followed that model.
0: Uh, how about George W. Bush and AIDS? He might take some credit for that in Africa.
1: Yeah, no, he would. Yeah, he should. And in PEPFAR, I mean, that program is you know both Democrats and Republicans praise it, um, and it's what a what an example of compassionate conservatism you know at work that we don't see anymore really. Um, so yeah he's done a lot of good uh, and he's also fought to keep funding for, for that program um, after he left office and he's been successful and keep. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. It was an extraordinary program. Um, uh, Give us a blow by blow of what president Obama said to George HW Bush, as much as you, as much as you know, here um, on that last visit, Um, I remember there was a brief, Press release President Obama put out. He, you know, he just visited George H. W. Bush. Tell us how all how that all went down.
1: Well, I mean, George, that we don't know what they actually said to each other in private because they had a few minutes where they were alone. But um, you know, the uh, Obama was in Houston three days before Bush passed away, and uh, it was a, a meeting that had been set up uh, well months in advance. And, um, I interviewed the Bush's chief of staff who described how, how really tough it was that day and how Bush was not doing well. And she turned to Obama when he arrived and whispered, you know, if it was anyone other than you, we would have canceled this meeting today, Mm -hmm. but it meant so much to Bush for Obama to come. And it was Bush, John Meacham, the historian, and who's very close with the Bush family and Neil Bush, who I interviewed for the book, um, one of the Bush's sons, they were there and they all sat together. Bush 41 was in his wheelchair, wasn't able to speak very much, but he was listening to the conversation. Um, And they, you know, at at the end of about 45 minutes, uh, Obama asked if he could have a few minutes alone with Bush Sr., and Neil said that you know he's sure that they talked about foreign policy and that that Obama probably praised his father for uh, for his his grace and dignity and, and we sober
0: heard, leadership yeah yes
1: so I mean it was just a it's a heartfelt meeting because I think it's unexpected I mean it certainly wasn't the last interaction I expected to hear definitely expected to. That Bush 43, you know, his son would be the last president to see him. And I asked Bush's spokesman why, you know, why he wasn't. And Bush's spokesman said, you know, he, that he had said goodbye so many times to his father before, that there were so many times they thought he was going to pass away. So, you know, they just didn't know that this would actually be the time. Um and bill clinton too i think we were expecting i would have expected it to be bill clinton but obama you know this person separated by uh decades and race and uh, politics um to have that kind of mutual admiration for each other i think it's just important to to think about a little bit when things are so divided
0: yeah um one of the reasons we all love the president's club all right i've got i've got three sort of rapid fire questions here for you um Does the future of the president's club depend on whether on whether Donald Trump participates in it?
1: No, no, I don't think they I don't think they need him to be part of it. He's an outlier. And I think uh, if Biden is elected, which we don't know, but he he would fit in very well because he's someone who like has these relationships and he follows these rules pretty well. So no.
0: Will Donald Trump invite Barack Obama to see his portrait unveiled?
1: No, and, and that's already been reported that, that, that he will not. And so that's kind of incredible to me. So no.
0: And, and some of those events that we saw between the Clintons and, and, um, and the Bushes and then the Bushes and the Obamas, those are, that was really great made for TV. And I think a phenomenal um, opportunity for Americans to watch mm-hmm. some have at least a healing moment.
1: Yes. And, you know, there's a great story, and I could just quickly say that, that when the Bushes came, Michelle Obama took her staff aside and said, you know, we need to make this the best uh, day for the Bush family. And so they had this big lunch with 14 members of the Bush family in the Red Room of the White House, and she brought them to meet all the resident staffers who had worked for for them when they were in the White House. So, yes, I agree. It's a real made for TV moment.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was beautiful moments. And they give funny speeches during those, too. I'm sorry, we're not going to get to see one uh, anytime soon. Yeah. Um, uh, last one has a former president, and we talked, we touched on this just a hair, has a former president ever endorsed the opponent of a member of the same party? So, in other words, the question is would George W. Bush ever actually endorse Joe Biden? And has that ever happened?
1: Mm, that's a great question i My belief is that george w. Bush wouldn't endorse Joe Biden because you know uh, in twenty sixteen we did not we we did not hear george w bush uh endorse Hillary Clinton, although reportedly um george h w Bush voted for Hillary Clinton, which is kind of incredible, and Barbara Bush wrote in. Jeb Bush, which is also incredible. And, and, um,
0: yeah, you can't blame <laughs> her for writing her own son's name.
1: That's true, but it's amazing to think like here's this Republican dynasty, the leaders of the dynasty, and neither of them are voting for the Republican candidate. And so I think it's, I, but I would be stunned if Bush endorsed Biden because of the, like I was saying earlier, George P. Bush, a member of the Bush family, is has endorsed Trump, and he's in politics, and there's just too much. I, th- I think it would require him to really go out on a limb to do that
0: yeah um uh, so um I did read that the president's team is desperately hoping that george yeah. w endorses uh endorses uh joe biden um yeah, i tend to agree with you i would, i think that probably won't happen um so anyway, uh, you know, I knew this was gonna happen, i knew this was gonna go. much longer than I ever thought it would because I just can't resist a good presidential discussion. And we've got the, the absolute uh, expert in presidential history here and right now. Uh, So um, I want to end this with a quote though, which is um, from Harry Truman. When you get to be president, there are all those things, the honors, the 21 gun salutes, and you have to remember it isn't for you. And you have that in the book.
1: I love that quote too. So uh, yeah, I mean, that just says it, that says it all. It's not for you. And I think that, that some, some presidents struggle with that more than others. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> no names. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kate, Kate Brower, <laughs> author of team of five, the president's club in the age of Trump. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, certainly check out that book and her other books. Uh, they're all fantastic. I've read them all uh, every word. Uh, the residence is one first women, is the next and then first in line about vice presidents. Um, She's active on Twitter at Kate Brower. So thank you for being here. We, We very much appreciate this.
1: Thank you. And I, I love your podcast idea and completely agree with you about making history accessible. And so I think that's wonderful. All
0: right. We got our first endorsement. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, thanks, Kate, for being here. And thank you for listening to this first episode of Axelbank Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the shows. We'll have uh, guest announcements on there and book recommendations. So we will see you next time. Thank you.